From your local Houston BMW Center Studios, welcome to the Public Affairs Podcast, addressing local issues that affect our nation and shape our world. I'm your host, KG Smooth, joined by my elite counterpart, <laughs> Uncle Funky Larry Jones. How you doing, Uncle? Good morning, sir. I am great, and surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise, surprise. I turned on the television, and you were the surprise for Ready to Love. Congratulations. Well, thank you so much. I am, uh, yes, this for those of you who... Season... Season four. Season four. Congratulations. So, thank you. I'm back for another season. You know, I was on season three of Ready to Love on on, and the network asked me to come back for another season, and I was a surprise, and so... They revealed me, and Friday was um, that first episode where I stepped back on the scene. So uh, it's it's exciting. Well, good for you, man. Well, well thank you. And we've got a, pr- a great podcast today, guys. You're gonna oh, love absolutely. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, right now, one of my uh, great friends and partners right here um, in Houston, he is uh, the owner of the Houston Furniture Bank. Please welcome Oli Mohammed to the Public Affairs Podcast. And um, this the other gentleman who was on the line, he's the facility manager at American Furniture Warehouse, Brandon Grange. Welcome, gentlemen, to the Public Affairs Podcast. Thank you, KG. Thank you very much. Yes, indeed. Yeah, KG, great to be here. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, uh, Oli, uh, last year when we um, had interviewed you all, I mean, you weren't on the call, but um, I was telling Larry um, about you all, and he was not familiar with Houston yeah. Furniture Bank. Uh, because remember when I visited the warehouse um, before yeah. the pandemic, and we took all those great pictures of me jumping on the mattresses and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> oh, I remember now. Yeah, you remember that? Yeah. 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 And so uh, Larry felt a little left out and like, wait, <laughs> I want in on the phone, uh, on, on the fun. And, and who is this guy, Oli, that you keep talking about? So um, here you all are are, are now here. Unky, this is This is the, the incredible Oli Muhammad. Well, Oli, <laughs> nice to meet you. And the next time you have a bounce off at the at the warehouse, let me know. I, I like jumping too. It can be. It can be anytime you want it to happen. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. Here, here. So, Oli, um, tell us about for those of uh, because Houston Furniture Bank is the best kept nonprofit secret in the city. A lot of people aren't familiar with it. Even Larry, who has been here for eons. Yes, I'm embarrassed to say I, I am not aware. Was not aware of the fine work you were doing for the city. Yeah. So, just uh, tell tell folks about. Uh, and HFB. So Houston Furniture Bank is a charitable 501c3 organization that collects and distributes furniture to families in need mm-hmm. through a network of agencies, about 50 of them, that brings families to the furniture bank. And on a monthly basis, we provide furniture to over 100-plus families. But while in doing this for 29 years, Furniture Bank has developed a, a program where we have some social businesses. We recycle mattresses. We have two different furniture outlet stores that that collects furniture, that sells furniture to families in uh, its regular customers, and then uh, collect money to raise to run the furniture bank distribution program. 
we do we have we started mattress recycling which means that we take mattresses that were destined to go to the landfill we recycle them and refurbish them in for last in last 8 years we have done over 120000 mattresses recycled in the furniture bank facility last year alone we did 26000 mattresses recycled in the furniture bank mm-hmm. we also since uh, um, flood in houston we have started manufacturing mattresses that we used for our distribution and we sell those mattresses to public also mm-hmm. and in doing all this one of the best partners that we have found in Houston is American Furniture Warehouse mm. if whoever doesn't know i know that uh, there are representative of american furniture warehouse they will talk about our partnership but this had been a huge plus for us because american furniture warehouse brings mattresses and other items for recycling and redistribution at the furniture bank they also promote the furniture bank's program to all the customers that they come to buy from them so that if they have old furniture that they need to get rid of they can donate that to the furniture bank nice it, you know, you know i was going to ask how did this uh how did this merge happen? Uh, what, 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 Brandon, what made you all want to uh, partner with Houston Furniture Bank well, over there you in know, America? We, we, had, we have a gentleman that used to run the Star Furniture Company. He is the one who connected us with American Furniture Warehouse before they even started their operations here in the Houston area. Yeah, you know, we started at American Furniture Warehouse in Webster, just uh, south of NASA Bypass, off the, the 45 on the south end of town there. We started building our facility in 2018 and, and moved in in 2019. And during that time, uh, Bill Ward, the gentleman Oli was speaking of, who used to run Star Furniture, uh, you know, knew our name. Uh, we're, we're from Colorado, and so we are new to the Houston market. And um, you know, he knew the the size of our operation and, and immediately connected the dots and, and thought, well, geez, this is a no brainer. You know, American furniture has a need because, you know, think about this. We sell mattresses, we sell furniture and, and folks that have the, the old product in their home and they need to make space for their new product. They can then donate their old furniture to the Houston Furniture Bank. We actually pick up mattresses from those customers. We bring them into our facility. And then, you know, we're getting about two to three truckloads per month that will then fill up and we'll send down to uh, the Houston Furniture Bank to help them with their recycling project. And then what we do is we bring their cardboard and their styrofoam and their plastic back to our facility because we have, we have state-of-the-art recycling plants within our facilities. You know, furniture comes in all shapes and sizes. And, and with that really comes a lot of packaging, right? So to keep that packaging out of the landfills, we've invested um, millions of dollars um, in equipment through our, throughout all of our facilities to process that product, recycle it, um, and actually in some cases, believe it or not, turn a profit on that product. Um, and at the same time, keep all of that out of our landfill. So it's, it's an effort that we have to be green, and it's a win-win partnership with the great charitable organization that is 
the Houston Furniture Bank. You know, they have a, Houston Furniture Bank has a um, a mission. You know that that no child sleeps on the floor. You know, there's so many uh, kids that sleep on the floor at night, and and a good night's sleep is important for everybody, right? For us adults, but think about the development of a child and how important it is for them. You know, for their their mental capacity, their physical abilities. Um, and as no child should sleep on the floor, right? So that's one of the Houston Furniture Bank's missions, and, and we're happy to uh, help partnership our partnership with them um, to make that dream come true. Gentlemen, w- w- I, I am I am amazed and 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 deeply moved that the organizations, first of all, have come together to do great work, and then you're eco eco friendly. You 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 you're working to to save the environment and, and recycle, which is another step toward green and, and protecting our beautiful planet. But I have to ask, um, during the recent freeze, how did that affect your ability to recycle and get people mattresses who needed them? I'll let you go first, Ollie. Well, you know, but the freeze was, you know, Houston Furniture Bank in the last 29 years. And being in Houston, we have we have learned to roll with the punches. That, <laughs> yes, that's what we are doing. You know? and, and the fact of the matter is the population that we starved KG, mm-hmm. they, are, they were in need before the pandemic. They were in need now. They were in need in, before uh, the freeze uh, the happened. They are, in, they are in need now. So we have over... 300,000 children that are going to sleep on the floor or sharing their bed with someone every night in our community. Mm. So, and and hundreds and thousands of pieces of items are going to the landfills rather than being recovered and be redistributed to families in need. And the partnership with uh, an organization like American Furniture Warehouse with other big furniture companies out in town can ensure that we will not have that situation in the future. So the need for basic furniture is always there. And whenever there is a natural disaster that hits us, the need goes higher. People who have resources, they can spend money and substitute that people who are poor, they just have to go without. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when you when you mention the freeze, it brings me back. You know, this community is so resilient. Like Oli said, I, you know, as I mentioned, we moved from Colorado, so we're we're well aware of the snow and the cold. But um, you know, what we went through here was really amazing to see. Um, having come from Colorado, I, I moved here two years ago personally. Um, and it really is amazing to see how this community um, just pushes through. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. I, they, they, this community pushes through, um, and, and there's a sense of community uh, unlike I've seen anywhere um, in the country that I've been. So, you know, as far as our operations go and whether it slowed us down or not, we persevered. You know, we have we have generators that we operate on when we don't have power, and so our operation just, just keeps trucking. You know, it just keeps trucking. You know, we're talking about recycling a bit and, and staying green. You know, we, we between the Houston Furniture Bank and American Furniture Warehouse last year alone, 
Um, we processed 1.2 million pounds of recycled material that we kept out of the landfill. And we're, we're almost going to double that this year. Um, uh, you know, so we're, we're both serving each other's needs um, and we're both here to support each other. It's been, it's been a fantastic partnership. Indeed. You're listening to the Public Affairs Podcast. We're talking to Oli Muhammad from the Houston Furniture Bank and Brandon Grange, Facility Manager at American Furniture Warehouse. Um, gentlemen, in terms of the recycling uh, materials, like just talk about how this is great for Mother Earth and w- what you all are doing. So, so I can say that Houston Furniture Bank, through our research, we know that in the Houston area, every year, about 750,000 to a million pieces of mattresses goes to the landfill. And each and every piece of mattress, an approximate 23 cubic feet of space is needed in the landfill. And this never really compacts. So there is air pockets that happens and methane gas is produced through that. So these are the effects. Can you imagine filling up the Reliance Stadium twice a year up to the brim mm. and leaving them for hundreds of years? That's nice. what that's the damage we are doing to the environment, to the ground of, around us. So when we took out 26,000 mattresses from going to the landfill last year, we have created an impact. This year, what our goal is to recycle at least 50,000 mattresses. But the thing is, Houston Furniture Bank really properly impacts our environment just on that note. needs to do, if we did 100,000 mattresses, Every month, still, we will be way down for what needs to happen. And we are not even talking about the furniture, the furniture that could be repaired. If we had a repair program, if we had someone provided us with some seed money to, that could prepare, create jobs for people, save the landfill and provide furniture much needed by families. So we have a long way to go, and your support and your radio station's support and creating network with American Furniture Warehouse and the whole furniture industry in our, in our area is the way forward for the Furniture Bank. Mm, indeed. And, Brandon, how, was, how important was that for you all over at American Furniture Bank? Um, you know, you know very important, very important. We, we have um, similar partnerships in other areas in the country and, um, and finding then, you know, there's a difference in a way, though, because we are not partnered with um, a nonprofit as we are in Houston. So um, to be able to help a nonprofit and fulfill our goal of being as green and having less of a footprint as possible, again, was a no brainer. And we're we couldn't be happier that, that Bill approached us and we met Oli and, um, you know, we, we do everything we can to be green. We have, we have 300 trucks on the road in our, in our trucking fleet. And, you know, all of our, our trucking fleet is, uses auxiliary power units so that when the trucks are 
parked at night at truck stops. They can shut off. They can not idle their engine and their air conditioner and their heat and the cab will still work. Um, you know, we're saving, we estimate 3,500,000, excuse me, 3,500 gallons of fuel um, just a week with some of the energy efficient um, products that we have on our trucking fleet. Yeah, since 1975, when this company was founded, our owner, Jake Jabs, has been committed um, to, to our recycling program. And so it's just, it's one of our core values. And, and to be able to fulfill and live that core value while helping uh, the Houston Furniture Bank has been very important to us. Yeah. How can the uh, community help out? I mean, in terms of, in, in, in any way, be it volunteering to break down, be it donating their mattresses or uh, furniture that they want to, uh, you know, recycle? What, what can the community do and how do they do that? I think, I think first of all, is our responsibility is to stop so that we don't have to say that Houston Furniture Bank is a well-kept secret. This mm-hmm. secret needs to be broken. We do yeah. not need to be secret anymore. Absolutely. So that's that's number one. People need to understand. Nobody thinks, you can ask anybody, nobody thinks about, you know, nobody thinks thinks that there is there are people sleeping on the floor. That's not reality of our regular life. So we are not thinking. So that awareness, once we can create that awareness in the community, I think Houston is such a giving, caring community that once people, we, re, we realize the fact, people in this community realize what's happening, you'll see it will stop happening anymore. You'll see that you'll have to find someone without a bed, find a child, because, because we can solve this problem. If 300,000 children are sleeping on the, uh, sleeping on the floor and we are throwing away a million pieces of mattresses to the landfill. It's just a matter of doing an equation, turn that around. Mm-hmm. See that nobody needs to go to sleep on the floor. Mm-hmm. We can make it happen. It's that awareness to me. We need volunteers, we need money, we need people to donate money, we need people to donate their furniture, we need people to volunteer with us. But number one is being aware of the problem. Mm-hmm. What you're you're helping us do right now, KG, right? We need to get the word out, like Oli said, and, and it, the best kept secret uh, verbiage needs to go away, right? We don't want that word secret in there. Uh, you know, folks are out and they're they're wondering what to do with their old furniture. They're going to go buy new furniture from American Furniture Warehouse, and 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 we we push them towards Houston Furniture Bank, but we need that to be uh, throughout the city and, and have that mentality that there are people that can use these products um, and that really need these products. And so we need to just get the word out and thank you for helping us do that today. Yeah, absolutely. We have been uh, an advocate here for Houston Furniture Bank um, for many years, or at least ever since I took over the community affairs program for Radio One Houston, which was back in 2000. 13, 14, mm-hmm. um, you know, Oli and you, Houston Furniture Bank has had an open invitation. And so, yes, I agree. And, you know, and I've been doing what I can to get the word out because they're uh, very necessary and so needed. But you all are so incredible over there. And that's the problem. You all are so incredible and nobody knows about you. So uh, whatever we can <laughs> do, we want to continue to get the word out. Oli Mohammed. 
founder of Houston Furniture Bank and Brandon Graves, the facility manager at American Furniture Warehouse. Thank you all for coming on the podcast. Oh, and give um, the websites where people can just get more information on you all in this partnership. So Houston Furniture Bank is is at www.houstonfurniturebank.org. Houston Furniture and AFW, we're, we're real simple, AFW.com. And if you're in one of our stores, we have business cards that we hand out. We have signage in a store um, directing people uh, to donate and, and to learn more about the Houston Furniture Bank. So you can find information in our stores as well. Indeed. HoustonFurnitureBank.org and AFW.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, KG. Indeed. Appreciate you, KG. Thank you. And Larry, too. Larry still. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Hey, Larry. You have been very quiet, Larry. I was listening and learning. Listening and learning. Yes, indeed. Absolutely fabulous. Yes, thank you all again. And uh, we'll be back with more of the podcast up next with attorney Simone Redwine. So don't you move. From your local Houston BMW Center Studios, welcome back to the Public Affairs Podcast, addressing local issues that affect our nation and shape our world. I'm your host, KG Smooth, joined by Uncle Funky Larry Jones. Good morning, sir. Always good to see you. And always, I want to thank the men and women of the military who are serving our great country around the world and listening to us on this global podcast. It is good to be with you, sir. And congratulations on the reveal of season four for Ready to Love, sir. Wow, thank you. Thank yeah. you. It's an, it's an exciting time. Um, you look good, and I love that suit, my friend. I absolutely love that color on you. Well, thank you. you know, I had to stay consistent with it. The first time, the fuchsia, this time, I don't uh, uh, orange, yellow, orange, yellow. It looks different on like on TV. Different it looks TV. yellow, but at the house it looks kind of orangey. But you know, well, but on your post you. it looks good. Well, thank so, you so much. There we and are. and speaking of ready to love, yep. welcoming back to the public affairs podcast, uh, a friend of mine, and she was a castmate on season three uh-huh. of Ready to Love. Ladies and gentlemen, attorney Simone Redwine is back on PAP. Hey guys. Doing? Hey, oh, thank you so much. I am so happy to be back, guys. Oh, man, we're happy to have you. You were so amazing uh, the last time. And then um, she had this incredible idea, um, like, hey, um, you know, if you guys want me to come on and talk about, you know, the uh, Derek Chauvin yeah. trial, Chauvin, Chauvin, however you say his name, I call him Derek. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't deserve that respect. You know, I can give some insight. Mm-hmm. I said, you know what, Simone, that would be Perfect. But mm-hmm. I got to be honest, Simone, I I haven't been keeping up. I uh, I watched the first day. I watched some of the second day and my spirit just couldn't take it, you know, especially, you know, hearing those babies talk, just hearing all of the witnesses that were standing there and, you know, them showing that video. That was my first time seeing the entire George Floyd video. Mm-hmm. And it just... Oh, it broke me down inside. I just mm. and I and I just can't. I mean, I'm keeping up on what I'm seeing on Twitter like that, but I ain't been watching, watching like like I did. I don't up, like the OJ trial. Yeah, the OJ trial. That was like my soap opera. <laughs> Right. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if I if I weren't an attorney, if I didn't have to do this for the purpose of, you know, breaking this down for the public, I wouldn't be watching it daily either. So I 
thoroughly, thoroughly understand. And that's why I'm here today. We want to talk about it a little bit, break down some of the important concepts and some common questions I've been given it so that you know what? You don't have to watch it every day, but you still know enough to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, counsel, let's get started. Uh, the racial makeup of the jury, of the 12 jurors, three black men, one black woman, two multicultural, and three alternate all-white. How does that play? Yes. Yes. Well, um, generally as attorneys, we believe that when you have a more diverse jury, you have a better chance of getting just, right? Because for years, they would go, they being, you know, when juries would be selected, they go out of their way to keep Blacks off of juries, because historically we were seen as, what, too compassionate to defend it. Mm -hmm. So... Here, the hope is that by having a multiracial jury, we have a better chance of justice. But one thing that's interesting here is while we do have three black men on this jury of 12, um, only two of them, uh, I'm sorry, only one is a black American male. Two of them are actually black immigrants from African countries. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Interesting, it is. Mm. They tend to have a very different experience with the police, it, it it particularly varies with how long they've been here. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. a lot of times they 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 don't compute to you know the whole slavery thing. Like they're not right. they're not privy to that, and then just how we're treated. So yes, you're absolutely right in that respect. Because I've actually been in conversation and heard you know um, other African brothers and sisters you know with that like. Yeah, we don't get over, you know, we, we, we don't come from that. So, you know, so, yeah, the compassion can mm-hmm. be a little lackluster uh, on on uh, that tip. And what about these other, the multiracial? Um, right. Folks? So we don't know uh, exactly what they identify as as multiracial. But interestingly, one of the officers, not Derek Chauvin, but one of the other officers that will later be tried, he is actually Nigerian and white. So he himself is multiracial, and I believe he may testify in this jury. So we'll see. But the others are, let's see, we've got one black woman, the two multiracial. I'm not sure if those are, I believe those are women. Um, but I do believe that, um, I believe 10 of the jurors are women. Uh, no, no, no. There's three black men. I believe that the majority of the jurors are women. And that was interesting to me, because I don't know if you remember, but on the Trayvon Martin jury, it was six, only six people, mm-hmm. all of them were women. Yep. So having women on a jury does not mean we are going to get justice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, that jury is actually more multiracial or more brown than the city of Minneapolis itself. Uh, Minneapolis is 74% white and then 17% either black or multiracial. So it's rare that you have a jury that is more diverse than the city itself. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Good chance for justice. Uh-huh. Yeah, good chance for, and, for, for justice. Yes. So we do have a chance. And and one of the reasons people often ask me, why do you think more black people don't get selected on juries? And I, I, I've said before, and I'm going to say it again, I think it's because we don't know how to be quiet. We talk <laughs> too much. When it is jury selection, I think often what happens is they'll tell you, you know, raise your hand. It's not a matter of us trying to get out of it. But sometimes when we tell too much of our story, um, what happens is you can get what's called dismissed for cause. So, for example, in this situation, there was a juror, and I'm going to quote this because I found this one real interesting. There was a black man who got eliminated for cause 
basically because um, he stated that he used to live in the very neighborhood where this happened. He's former military, and he specifically said in that neighborhood, the pot, the cops historically would um, in, uh, antagonize black men and use excessive force in that neighborhood. So he got eliminated for the jury for what's called cause. But to me, those are the epitome of the ones that you want on the jury if you're a prosecutor. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's so, one... mm-hmm. No, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say, so one of the things that sometimes is, is challenging is when you get called for jury duty, if you feel like you can be impartial, just sit there and be quiet <laughs> because no. they're trying to get rid of people who can't be impartial. But sometimes when you've had an experience with officers, it actually can make you more partial because it'll make you hear both sides. Whereas the other side of it is you're going to be on a jury with some people who all they know is to believe what an officer says because the officers they've ever heard of have been perfect. And yeah. that ain't what we want on a jury either. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I did notice and peep, um, and I was like, hmm, well, this is promising. When the police chief himself testified against uh, Derek, saying that he did use excessive force, like, and we do not... Yeah. Um, train our officers like that was that a great significance for the prosecution yes Yes. because that is particularly significant because at the end of the day the crux of the question is did Derek Chauvin use excessive force or not and Derek Chauvin's defense is going to be even if it was excessive this wasn't the cause of death. The cause was drug overdose or et cetera. Mm. But we have to make very clear he was not trained to do this. This was not acceptable. And he can't basically lean on police training in any capacity to say what he did was reasonable. So, yes, that was very helpful. And, you know, we're going to lean on that and be hopeful. But, you know, we're going to hold our breath this whole time. I think it's it's fair to say. Yeah, because it's just like, why is the man even still on the force? I mean, he had countless numbers of complaints, uh, 18 to be exact. Um, how many will we hear about on the trial? Like, will, will it be one? Good will, question. Will, will they step up and, you know, reveal all of that? Like, what? Absolutely. Explain so that? what happens is... Absolutely. Unfortunately, we are only going to hear about one, one of the 18. And you know what else? The other thing we're going to hear about is actually a time when he got an award uh, after he basically he was working with officers that used force, but then they called the ambulance and he rode with, it was actually a, I believe it was a woman. He rode with the woman to the hospital and they ultimately got a reward, an award, because they said had they waited any longer to call the paramedics, the person could have died. So I'm like, okay, it, that almost nullifies it. Now, the one that we will hear about, it's called, now those are called bad acts. How it works under the law is that you got to be really careful with admitting into evidence bad acts. Why? Because that's one of the number one reasons that jury verdicts get overturned on appeal. Is because that defendant who was later found guilty goes back and says, well, they should have never known about this other thing I did because we don't want the defendant to be punished 
for their prior bad behavior. You only want them to be punished for what they did in this case. So here, what we're going to hear about in the habit here is um, a particular incident. It was in 20, I believe it was 2017. In 2017, Chauvin went to arrest a woman at her home for allegedly trying to strangle her mother with an extension cord. And as she walked by, Chauvin grabbed her on her arm and told her she was under arrest. She tried to pull away. He put a cuff on one wrist. And as she tried to twist away, he pulled her to the floor. He kneeled on her body, pinning her down and finishing handcuffing her. And then when she wouldn't stand up, he and another officer basically dragged her out. They, they put her face down on the concrete, blah, blah, blah. Um, and ultimately, the reason they want to admit that one in is because they said that when he kneeled on her and he peeled her up, pinned her down, that um, his conduct in kneeling on the woman was more force than was necessary under the circumstances. So that's why they uh, want that one in. And the judge agreed that that one can be admissible because it was more similar than the other incident. However, when, when he did that, ultimately the police department cleared that behavior and he was actually not, uh, uh, you know, suspended from the force or anything like that. So we could kind of go either way. Hmm. The defense could lean on that to say, well, look, he did this before. Um, they didn't tell him he couldn't, you know, he wasn't punished. So he thought that, you know, this kneeling behavior, it wasn't reasonable for him to expect someone would die. Um, but we will get to see body cam footage from that incident, which, supposed, which is supposed to be very helpful to the prosecution. Hmm. You're listening to the mm -hmm. Public Affairs Podcast. We're talking to attorney Simone Redwine about the Derek Chauvin trial uh, of the murder of our very own brother right here from CUNY Homes, uh, George Floyd. Um, this was something interesting that I did actually come across and was surprised that there was no objection. While during cross-examination, uh, use of force mm -hmm. expert, um, LAPD Sergeant Jody Stinger, uh, the defense attorney had showed the body cam of George Floyd. So the defense attorney asked... Stringer, if he could interpret what George Floyd was saying at the time. And he said, does it sound like he was saying, I ate too many drugs? And uh, Stringer said he couldn't make out what mm -hmm. George Floyd was saying. Why didn't mm -hmm. the prosecution immediately object? Because here we have an attorney that is suggesting that the man said something to this witness. And, and I'm like, where, where was the objection? Great point. The only thing I could think of is that perhaps outside of the jury and not, you know, not televised on television, they had argued, already argued about this and the judge may have made a ruling to admit it in. And when that happens, that's often why you don't see an objection also on the record is because sometimes when you object like that and you get into an argument in front of a jury, it makes it more poignant to the jury. So that's the only thing that I could think of, because one of the things that the judge did state beforehand that he would allow to be admissible is evidence pertaining to uh, Derek Chauvin's um, uh, belief 
that George Floyd was dealing with a drug overdose or reacting in a particular way as a result of being on drugs. So that's the only thing. But, but because beforehand, the prosecution did um, argue and try to get that information excluded from evidence, but the judge considers it, quote, medical evidence. Mm. Medical mm-hmm. evidence, Montel. I mean, mm-hmm. man, you saw on the video, like he asked them, he was like, yo, can you just... Can you, can, can you give me out this card? Like, can you just lay me down? Right. Can you lay me down? Like he asked right. them to lay him down just so he could, you know, not feel so claustrophobic or, yeah. or whatever he was going through. And he's and he, a big guy. Yeah. And so I. Absolutely. Uh, so we got eight current or former officers that have testified yeah. uh, against Chauvin. Uh, what does that say to you, Simone? That says that he can't lean on any type of police training Mm -hmm. in order to make the jury believe that he thought his behavior was reasonable. Mm -hmm. I think that's where that's what that is going to speak to. Or the other argument that they're trying to bring, which is that um, because of the way the crowd was responding, Chauvin was distracted and not paying attention to George Floyd's medical needs oh, because please. of the crowd. I mean, that's BS. That's total BS. I mean, come on. Because if you got 12 people saying you're about to kill somebody, that probably means you're about to kill somebody. So adjust your behavior. I w- if, if someone thinks they're witnessing a murder, I wouldn't expect them to be calm, would you? N- not at all. Oh, you want to jump no. in? No. No. Absolutely not. Mm-mm. So what is interesting is they will allow evidence in, actually, of a 2019 arrest of George Floyd, um, in which they, uh, there was it was captured on body cam, and George Floyd allegedly swallowed a pill as officers were approaching them, and uh, police were responding to uh, a call about illegal narcotics activity. So the defense is arguing that this is Floyd's behavior as part of a pattern that quote when approached by the police. Floyd placed drugs in his mouth in an attempt to avoid arrest and swallow them, and that when act, interacting with police, he engaged in, quote, diversionary behavior, such as crying and acting originally. I don't care. So it's like they keep putting he, him on trial. Yeah, like, it, exactly, exactly. He was the one that was murdered, and yet y'all, y'all still want to put this man on trial in his death. I don't care if the man snorted a kilo of coke in front of them. Right. What happened to him was not justifiable at all. And when you look at that smug face on Derek's ill, Uh yeah, when you look at that smug look on his face, it, it, to me, it just said, die, die. Yeah. Care. We don't care. I don't care. And you're not going to do nothing about it. So mm-hmm. casual. Before we Absolutely. wrap this up, um, what do you believe if, 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 if someone is witnessed police, excessive police force on somebody, um, what do you, if you believe you've witnessed that, what, mm-hmm. where can they go? Where should they call, uh, make a complaint, you know, any anything absolutely 
So what you should do, whenever you believe that you've witnessed this, um, whether it was it happened to someone you know or a perfect stranger, um, each police department has a department called Internal Affairs. You want to Google that county or that city. So for Houston, we've got Harris County. You can go to HoustonTX.gov and put in Internal Affairs. And you can go online and make a written online complaint about what you saw. You can even, if you've got video, you can upload video, okay? You can also call 713-308-0040. If it's the Houston Police Department, that's 713-308-0040. Or whatever city that you're in, basically, you want to go online. You want to Google that city's police department and internal affairs. And I recommend doing a written online report as opposed to telephone, because you don't know who's going to answer that phone. Is it going to be a friend of that officer who's going to pretend like they're taking your you know, report and not? But when you do it online, you've got a written copy. And as an attorney, one of the reasons this is so important is while we're having difficulty with you know, getting criminal charges pressed against these guys, this helps tremendously for civil victories. Here, George Floyd's family received a $27 million settlement. That means they didn't have to go to court. They got that out of court. One of the ways to get that is because you can do an open records request on all of the complaints against an officer. And generally, and for the most part, you can get copies of those complaints as an attorney. So you can see how often has this person been accused of this or that. And then also, hey, we social media these days. Right. Tweet Feel free to tweet that police department. You can tweet a video clip, you can Facebook, and you can tag them on a clip. Um, but I do recommend, if you if you feel like you may have any warrants or tickets out there, let somebody else tweet and upload that video for you. Right. Because I don't trust these people. You know, we don't want you trying to help somebody else and you end up getting pulled in for some traffic tickets or, you know, a traffic parking warrant, whatever. Absolutely, it is. Uh, internal affairs is where you go. Please, please, everyone, let's make those reports. Indeed. Attorney Simone Redwine, season three of Ready to Love. Uh, make sure you check out her podcast. Girl, is that legal? Yes. <laughs> <And follow laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> on YouTube. On YouTube, I'm sorry. And, um, and you can follow her on Instagram at... Is it just is it just Simone Redwine or is it Simone? Attorney? Yeah, it's Simone Redwine. I spell it S Y M O N E Redwine. Um, also, Attorney Simone S Y M O N E. And if you have any legal like questions or comments, whatever, you can text me or call um, me at one eight five five four Simone. That's S Y M O N E. Because on you. my podcast, <laughs> I um, I like to answer legal questions, especially if I keep getting similar ones like you know do i have to give the cops my driver's license if i'm walking down the street and i'm stopped i like to answer different ones like those so we can have a better understanding of our rights under the law indeed well um you guys get used to uh, hearing her we're gonna, we're gonna, she's <laughs> gonna be a regular on here outstanding I mean, information great. And, and, and thank you for um rendering your services and, and intellect and, uh, and outlook to us. We appreciate it. Simone Redwine, Attorney Simone Redwine, we appreciate you. And we also appreciate you for listening to the Public Affairs Podcast. And we'll see you next week.